0: Yeah. So a little bit of background. So I, uh, I did not attend, uh, RailsConf. I had a, a commitment out of town for two of the days and just decided that, uh, it would be too much to try to, uh, organize that. Yeah. But I watched, uh, DHH's, uh, keynote and, uh, you know, the, the various reactions, uh, in all directions that it, uh, elicited yeah. and then asked on Twitter if, uh, if, uh, anyone, uh, would like to talk about it and you were recommended as a guy that may have good opinions. Yeah. So I thought, uh, what the heck you, uh, yeah, I was
1: on a panel afterwards and I made some comment, um, that I think someone mentioned. <laughs> right. So, uh,
0: wh- why don't we get into that in a minute? But, uh, okay. uh, let's rewind just a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people know you, they certainly know ThoughtBot, but if you want to just introduce yourself, that'd be great.
1: So, yeah, I'm Chad Pytel. I'm the CEO and one of the founders of ThoughtBot. And we are one of the leading Ruby on Rails firms in the world. Um, We've been... I've personally been using Rails since um, early 2005. I think the first uh, version of Rails I used was 0.13 or something like that. Wow. And we are... uh, you know, this is disputable. The, the facts are not hard, but we're the first uh, consulting company that I know of to have switched to Ruby on Rails. And we did that right when it hit 1.0. Um, so right at the uh, in the fall of 2005 when it hit 1.0, we switched to Rails. Um, and uh, before that, we had been doing Java, PHP, and Perl. Um, and we said we weren't going to take any new work in those, and we were going to take all new work in Ruby on Rails.
0: Wow, so Thoughtbot's existence preceded Rails. I had no idea that
1: that was true. It did, yeah. So we did we started off doing anything anyone would pay us to do with computers. Uh, <laughs> so that meant not only web apps and websites, like traditional portfolio sites, but also we set up computers, we installed Microsoft Word, we sold computers, we set up networks, and we had a full-time technical support person who did that uh, stuff as well as me. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, it was always the biggest part of our business was always the web applications. And but we were small, and we really just did anything we could do to make ends meet. So, what what years uh, or what, what time period did it start in? That was two thousand three. Two thousand three. Yeah.
0: My, uh, my first job ever while I was in college was for a company that kind of had that philosophy called imagicians in Boston. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I remember I, I sold for them. I didn't program and I was, uh, I don't know, somewhere between 18 and 19, I think at the time. And, uh, I remember selling the kind of work you just said. So right. w- walk in and say, you know, Hey, if what that involves a keyboard, a screen and software is problematic for you. And, Yeah, the
1: goal was at the time we thought we were going to be a full-service IT um, consulting company for small and medium-sized businesses. So we thought that, and, you know, this was when we existed for two years doing this, which is, you know, we could be an IT department that you never had. Um, If you're a small or medium-sized business, you can't have a staff of programmers, of people uh, setting up your computers and that kind of thing. So for the application development we did, um, you know, uh, we charged for that. But then for the technical support, we tried to have monthly um, retainers. And, you know, it was a steady stream of um, revenue uh, for the otherwise unsteady stream of application development revenue. Did you start it right out of uh, college? No, me and the other founders, uh, right? Out, we all went to school together. And we... Um, I got a job after graduating in 2002 at a medical billing uh, software startup and ended up hiring uh, this group of people that uh, I went to school with that I um, did I uh, did improv and sketch comedy in school. and so there were people on the improv group and the sketch group. Um, so basically my friends um, ended up hiring them and we were the IT department. And little did we know it at the time, but uh, the company was not all it seemed to be. Uh, the person running it had like actual uh, mental medical problems. Um, and so he was basically lying about the state of the company and, and what it was doing. So it fell apart pretty quickly. We went a couple months not being paid, um, um, and then it fell apart pretty quickly. So we all left. And that process of sort of that really bad situation put me in a state and the rest of them as well of just like not feeling like we were up for going doing interviews, talking about what we had done, um, that kind of stuff. Also combined with the fact that I was in a position that was, I was not qualified for. I was manager of information systems. I was leading the IT department basically right out of school. And it was sort of demoralizing to know I wasn't going to be able to get that job again, um, that I was going to have to go and be an entry-level developer somewhere or or something like that and start over. And so instead of doing that, I did the natural thing and started a company.
0: <laughs> yeah, I like the idea that you decided you were bummed that you wouldn't be qualified to be a, uh, uh IT manager, so you made yourself CEO. That's fun. Right, yeah. <laughs> I think that there's some that there's a lot of wisdom in that idea. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And, you know, it was it was a little bit out of necessity and a little bit out of like that's just what I felt comfortable doing at the time. And, you know, and um, part of what the necessity part was, we had gone two months not being paid. We were just out of school. So, you know, we didn't have I didn't have savings to rely on. But I knew that I could make some phone calls and get a couple of uh, small, and medium sized businesses to pay start paying us a monthly fee to take over their networks, to take over their computers. And so it was a way to get immediate revenue right away. Um, so where'd you go to school? WPI, Worcester Polytechnic Institute.
0: Yeah, I went to Babson College in oh, yeah. in Wellesley. which So yep. I, I feel like I had gone to just about every school between, you know, call it MIT on the east side of Massachusetts and, I don't know, maybe... Mount Holyoke on the west side for Mm -hmm. a party, but never to WPI. Was that? Is that? Is is
1: there a reason that somehow WPI is not really a party school? Yeah. If you were at WPI, you would sometimes go to parties, Uh, but there was no reason to go to WPI for a party. (laughs) That sort of sounds like the Pittsburgh of universities. Like if you're in Pittsburgh, you have a good time, but you seldom go to Pittsburgh to have a good time. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) WPI is a really great school, but it's not a great party school. Yeah, Uh, it's pretty small too. So, you know, there's just uh, I think my graduating class was uh, like 760 people or so. Total school is about 5,000 people, including undergrad and grad. Um, So there's just not um, the not the level of activity that you would normally get. But you know, I, I as many people I know, we went to visit WPI. I went to visit WPI and immediately responded to it as this is the place that I want to go. Um, I applied early decision, got in, didn't apply to any other schools, um, and you know, fortunately was able to go there. So, and my wife is the same way. We, we met at WPI. Um, she didn't apply early decision or not to any other schools, but it was sort of she tells the story she went to visit with her dad, and her dad, unbeknownst to her, bought the sticker for WPI, <laughs> um while they were visiting and said, This is the school you're gonna go to um to himself. Um and then later on when she decided he was like, Okay, here's the sticker.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now are there many WPI
1: marriages? Is that, is that a common thing? Um well there can't be many because the when I went the school was only a twenty five percent women. So <laughs> right. um but there are it is a thing. Um and uh yeah, I'm certainly one of those cases.
0: Yeah, it sort of reminds me of Babson in some ways. So I also applied early, uh, early decision, and went without considering other schools. I don't really know why. Um, I mean, I've got theories as to why, but it's sort of mm-hmm. funny thinking back. Given that I've got a, a daughter that's uh, going to college this year, um, and seeing her very deliberate process compared to my, you know, not deliberate in any way process. But sometimes I wonder if, if sort of eliminating all of that choice and stress—I don't know—maybe it leads to more happiness because. You know, you don't, you don't agonize about all these alternatives.
1: That's definitely true. And, you know, I don't know how much of a tangent we want to take here, but, like, I have certain beliefs about school uh, that, like, college has very little to do with the actual program. Um, and particularly that comes, oh, I can bring it back to web development. Because for, I went to school for CIA, computer science, and I didn't learn web development in my computer science program. Everything I learned about how to actually develop for the web, I did it on my own time during school. Right. But the relationships and the people I met are what defined my life going forward from there. And um, so that was what was important to me about WPI in in, in the end. Right. Um, I, I chose WPI because I was going to be able to do computer science and they have a theater program and all that stuff. Yeah. I was going to be able to both of those things and it's a project-based curriculum and all these things that uh, at the time made it the right school for me but in the end i think that that actually mattered uh quite not very much
0: Well um, why don't we bookend the conversation then by coming back to this at the end and and um, talking about the the service that you offer the education services that you guys offer now because i'm interested in how sort of education experience has, has informed those, but let's, let's get back to that at the end. Yeah. So let's jump to the present day. So, you know, you, you've been doing consulting in the rails world or your company has at least for nine years now, I guess quite a Mm -hmm. while. Um, Well,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: And, uh, and you went to RailsConf this past week and, and DHH got up and as he does gave a, a keynote that, uh, got some reaction. So I thought it'd be fun to talk about the, uh, a little bit about the content of the keynote and a little yeah. bit more about both the, uh, your reaction and the community's reaction, both to the content and the style. Cause I think both are interesting mm-hmm. things to right. think about. Right. So, all right, let's, let's do our best at, uh, summarizing the points that he made in the, uh, the talk. Uh, d- do you want to go or do you want me to go first? Why don't you go?
1: Okay. <laughs> um, it's, Sort of difficult to actually summarize the points because, uh, at the you know, it's when you listen to someone speak, um, you're reacting emotionally, especially when he speaks the way that he does. You're re- reacting emotionally to it, but there are, in my mind, uh, the takeaways were uh, a couple different points. The the first one is you should not be um, architecting uh, your code to For the sole purpose of making it easy to test, Mm -hmm. um, for the sole purpose of making your tests fast, or for coverage, code coverage, um, that you should be instead writing good code that looks good to you and looks well architected to you, and your test should be secondary. So then he took that one step further and said, as a result of that. I do not believe in test-driven development, test-first development, where you write the tests first and then write the code. Um, So that was the step further that he took it. Um, And those were the main two takeaways for me. I don't know if you had anything else. I'd throw on, I think, one or two others. Oh, patterns. Patterns was the other one.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the, the whole best practices driven by call it science or computer science is is overrated for given that Mm -hmm. most software is written by software writers not engineers i think that was a something like that was one of the points and then i think that he i think like system testing is underrated Mm -hmm. sort of like a a a shift in focus from unit testing to system testing was uh, i think a theme also
1: yeah and I don't know that he's really defined what he means by system testing at this point, uh, which is part of the part of the problem I think people are having digesting what he's saying. Is that system testing is not a term that existed before he used it, just like software writer wasn't. It's not a defined term, and I don't think he's defined. It. I think what he means is integration level testing. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, some people were trying to say, do you mean acceptance testing or whatever? And he started railing against, um, this is on Twitter, against just the term acceptance testing. Um, And so it's been very unclear. And I think that's one of the things that has made it difficult to sort of actually digest what he's saying. Because it's sort of all over the place or undefined in, Mm -hmm. in, in real terms yet.
0: So I think we did a I think you did in particular a pretty good job of summarizing the main points content wise before we get into kind of talking about the the good and the bad of it all. How would you summarize the style of the presentation because I think that I think that people react to that as much as the content uh, right so it's probably worth it to talk about that as much too
1: so the style of the of the talk was started off very sort of mundane. <laughs> he gave a history of his computer, uh, his experience with computers and came to the conclusion that he is not a software engineer. He, you know, he's not a computer scientist, he's a software writer. And then all of a sudden it took a very dramatic turn and became, you know, what, what started almost as inspirational <laughs> took a very negative turn and the room sort of got quiet um, and you know he put up you know he, he started to say like I um, come to this conclusion that there's lots of people in our community that are basically snake oil salesmen that are creating things that are way too complicated and are distracting us from uh, actually writing good code and he put up a slide, a big, big red slide. It said TDD, and said TDD is one of those things. Mm-hmm. And then um, the tone of the conversation really um, changed at that point. It became really a, uh, an attack on TDD. Um, you know, from my perspective, very negative. I, I don't know, but it, it almost came off as very intentionally meant to be controversial. Um, you know, that it was almost like, is this for real? Like, or is this a big like troll? Uh, like intentionally negative, intentionally trying to be controversial. Um, and you know, the room was generally very quiet. Um, every once in a while he would say something and a small contingent of people would like clap or uh, cheer him on. Um, but it w- it was not a, you know, it was not a enjoyable keynote, I think, for the people that were there, uh, partly because it was so uh, awkward um, uh, to sort of be in the room and be like, is this sort of really happening? Like, um,
0: So scale of one to 10, for those of us that weren't in the room, and we could hear, like you said, the intermittent clapping of, of some folks that were, but but didn't have a sense for what portion of the whole room that would be. How like How awkward was it?
1: For, I, th- I thought it was pretty awkward. I think at a certain point it got to the point where people started to just—I I know I did—I sort of just relaxed a little bit and said, "Like, oh, this is way over the top. Like, I don't—I can—I can no longer be awkward for this. I just have to like—it's going to happen for another twenty minutes. Then the keynote will be over, and and we'll talk about it." <laughs> um, so,
0: so, so I think that. So one thing you didn't mention that that stuck out to me was, and I think this is common in a lot of uh, his presentations, but the profanity was pretty Mm -hmm. high. I don't know if it was higher than usual or, or about the same as usual. I kind of felt to me like it was higher than usual, but I don't know. Um, it
1: didn't, it didn't feel higher than usual to me.
0: It just felt (laughs) up there like usual. Yeah. 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 So, so when you were talking about it, the word that came to mind about the, the presentation for me is it was very populist. Mm Mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. in like the in the classic definition of populist, so yeah, in the way
1: that Hitler was populist yes.
0: well i mean I, I, that's <laughs> is that I, what you mean <laughs> no i mean populist is in a, a, appealing to sort of uh, at least an imagined and maybe real mm-hmm. set of of um, programmers that and in sort of being deliberately anti intellectual and saying you know the fancy people with their fancy words and their fancy approaches, um, aren't going to take the power from you. Cause you right. know, And I, I think that that's, I think that that trick is pretty much the core of most populist speech and yeah. in politics. So it's an interesting approach, given that I'm not sure to your point that the room was the, the group of people that a populist speech would have imagined they would be. Um, do you think that, in other words, do you think that, that he was imagining that he was speaking to a group that wasn't there? Or do you think that he was just talking, uh, he he was just revealing his own feelings and they happened to sound populist?
1: I think he was revealing his own feelings. I think that, um, you know, he used a specific example of a bug in base camp that happened, Mm -hmm. um, that he feels, um would have been um that wasn't properly tested there was only unit tests for the functionality and having no um integration test or or system test as he called it um you know that would have found the bug um but you know those you know so i think it it, because he referenced a, a specific example from his work um and because i i do believe that that David is genuine in the things that he says, I, even though sometimes it can be come off as he's saying this to be controversial, I actually do, do not think that that's the case. He actually believes it. And, you know, it's, it's one thing to be the target of his attack and the other to not be. So last year, he gave a, a pretty, um, you know, uh, intense talk about uh, JavaScript frameworks and how they're not necessary and how he believes that you should build applications in a certain way using um, you know, server-side rendered markup that's sent to the client, um, which they've put to practice in Basecamp and has worked successfully for them. And he really believes that and stands by it. And for the people who are writing the JavaScript frameworks or the people who are very heavily invested in believing that that's the right way, they probably reacted somewhat just as negatively to that last year's talk right. as they did this year. And that, so that was very controversial in its own right, or at least um, confrontational in its own right. Um, but I, w- you know, there were less people in the room who were the target of that attack. Uh, I think many people at ThoughtBot believe the same thing that David believes in that regard. Um, so uh, when the attention was turned to this sort of personal practice that we have, um, it was controversial or confrontational towards us but i do believe he really believes that it. it's ironic
0: that this year's um, i guess second keynote then was from Yehuda given that it was largely about well not lar- it was partially about ember so maybe yeah. maybe next year's second keynote will be a you know tdd evangelist <laughs> we're following <laughs> maybe
1: that May- maybe well th- that's the thing is <clears throat> the last keynote was given by Aaron Patterson who it, you know, he's also a Rails Core team member. Much more reasonable uh, approach and convert and presentation style. Much more approachable. Much more likable. Um, and you know, in the kernel of what David may have been saying, there, there, I think that there's there's truth to, that you should not be writing your, te- your, your code so that it just solely so that it's easy to test. You should not just have unit, cover- unit level coverage, and you don't want to be optimizing your tests for, um, for coverage. You know, you, the goal should not be 100% coverage. Um, you're going to find no argument for me on that. In fact, we wrote a blog post four years ago saying exactly the same thing, um, and I, I tweeted it like right after the keynote being like hey if you're interested in reading about this I wrote, we wrote it four years ago um, so like that kernel of you know that lesson learned um, is something that we went through a long time ago it's great if that's what David's coming to now like that's fine um, but to come out um, just so negatively about a practice like that um, I think took people by surprise
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting thinking back to the content. There would be many ways to deliver what what he said. So uh, building on what you just said, uh, an alternative would have been to say, you know, hey, uh, uh, too many tests early unless they're they're serving as kind of a rubber duck for your development process Mm -hmm. can um, calcify the code and therefore I think you should delete the early tests uh, so that, you know, your test suite isn't dominated by... Tiny little unit tests that sort of scaffolded the very very low level components when that's not really the point, like that'd be a reasonable thing to say, yep, and
1: uh, is the same point that he made um, right and and for what it's worth i we are advocates of test first development, you know there's no doubt about it um, but that doesn't mean well, what I actually care about is people who don't test at all, like you know I actually really don't care if you personally and your team just writes tests but doesn't do test first development and you find that that works for you that's fine with me like I'm not I'm not an evangelist in that regard where I believe everyone should be doing um, test first development that's the way Thoughtbot does and the people who work at Thoughtbot believe that we should but that's our team and the projects that we work on and our projects are just as successful as other projects um, there's nothing to point to that says because we work the way that we do our projects are less successful than someone else, uh, which, you know, I tend to believe that is the case that there, that teams that do not do any testing at all have a more proven track record of lots of uh, high defect rate, difficult to change systems, right. those kinds of things. I mean, it's ironic that I think that
0: that so your key belief then is basically the same thing that if you if you parse the the negativity in some of the extreme language. And if you read, you know, his blog post, the same thing he said, but it's boy, mm-hmm. is it not the, in other words, that the real enemy is not having tests and that, you know, in his case, you know, he thinks that, that test first, maybe, maybe wags the dog a little bit, but that, uh, that, uh, he's not coming out against testing. He sort of said the same thing, right? Boy, does it come out different. So, so let's switch to system testing. So I yeah. agree that it wasn't, Defined too clearly in his talk, I think an interesting talk in hindsight would have been exclusively about quote system testing. So whether mm-hmm. that's integration testing or smoke tests or, or acceptance tests or whatever you want to call it, um, and, and sort of pushing things forward a little bit in that area. Since I, I think TDD, I think it's fair to say that the community is more focused on unit testing than it is on integration tests. Uh, well, first, would you agree with that?
1: Um, I know that ThoughtBot is not. Um, we, and, and maybe we just need to do more talking about this and how we actually test. We have a series of blog posts over the years that we've posted about how we've experimented with testing and what we've learned and how, how we're testing now. Um, maybe we can link those up in, in the show notes so That's that people idea. have them. But one of the last ones is just how at ThoughtBot we test. Um, and the way we test now is we start with the integration tests. Um, and we write um, those and then we fill in the blanks both um, at the code level and in unit and functional tests as they make sense as you begin to flesh out your code and then actually in that scenario there's nothing that says that you need to write that unit or functional test first when you're doing it that way it's ideal but there's nothing that says you have to because you've already written your tests first you've written the integration test first um, and so you work your way down and then you work your way back out until you have a, a passing uh, integration test um, we went through several a whole year where we were only writing integration tests no unit no functional sure. tests at all and we did that both with Cucumber because um, that was the popular thing at the time and also uh, experimented directly with just writing RSpec and Capybara directly um, and so we built you know, we build about 30 applications. At the time, we built about 30 applications a year. Um, and the majority of those, uh, a significant majority of those, I would say, were written that way. Um, and then at the end of that year, we we really felt as a team that we were not, that that was not the best way. Um, that the best way was to strike a balance there and have integration tests with a mix of unit and functional tests um, that will provide more spot coverage. Like it doesn't make sense to have an integration test that iterates through every single possible failure scenario, um, and which is what you need to do in order to make sure that you have confidence that you know the errors are rendered in the right way uh, for in those particular scenarios. All those kinds of things, and so the better place to test that is at the functional or you know the controller or the model level not at the integration level. And so most of our integration tests now are happy path through the application, testing that things really work the way that the user expects, that the flow works, that you see maybe one error in a particular case, but then to really, you know, to make sure that we have all the validations in place that we expect, all that stuff happens at the model level.
0: So, I mean, I I think a good outcome of... of his uh, keynote in the reaction would be if there was a lot more dialogue about strategies for mm-hmm. overall application testing, like, you know, yeah. just take what you just said and blow it out with lots of examples and, and people discussing kind of the right way to make sure kind of at what level do you test what concepts kind of to your right. point, you don't want to test that every single type of error renders correctly in the view when the model encounters it but splitting it up to say well it renders an error okay and then at the model level it validates all of the things it needs to validate um acceptably that's like that's an that's like a nuanced um practical point that i think is probably in line with what he was saying about systems testing but but wasn't really uh explored in much detail
1: right and i I think you could probably even go one step further and you know he put up what what at the time, I, I immediately identified it. It's sort of a it was sort of a straw man thing with the with the date uh, the birthday check and mm-hmm. the date today. That was his example. In, the initial test in place was using like a time cop type stubbing of time functionality. And you know Aaron in his talk, put that back up and said like, that's not even the way you should test that. Like like that is not the best way to test that. The best way to test it is through the API you already had. Which is to just create a user with a birthday, uh, with a with a birthday of the current year and then or the current day, and it is their birthday today, and you know that API already exists, and e- even more so, you don't need to save the user in order t- for that mm-hmm. to um, actually have. It. So you're not even hitting the database in your test for that. It's going to be a fast, discrete test that tests the way you want without mocking, without stubbing time, without doing anything, and so. More just discussion around like this is probably the better way to write that test, and so you don't need to go into okay, I'm removing mocking and stubbing, and now I'm going to go into dependency injection for this mm-hmm. uh, this example, which is where David went went down that road when he never really should have gone down that road. For example, and it's you know it's a contrived example, but you know in the same vein, I think that that's a common mistake that people make. And so providing more examples about how to effectively use built-in Rails functionality, built-in Ruby functionality to write meaningful, easy-to-maintain, non-brittle tests are good. And, you know, we've been blogging for years, you know, on our blog about this kind of stuff. Um, But our practices change over time, as they should. Um, Nothing ever stays the same. And so, just reminding ourselves that we need to continually um, do that is um, you know what we do as developers and it 's what I think a lot of people in the community uh, enjoy about ThoughtBot is that we we do talk a lot about the way we do things and mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff
0: yeah, hearing you talk about your journey from call it all integration tests for a while back to a mix of integration and unit and functional and backup, mm-hmm. I think I think that's the sort of talk that I think about when I think about Thoughtbot, which is kind of nuanced and not super religious um, about the about the details and and sort right. of recognizing that things are fluid, things change. Yeah, and I think that I think an interesting um, thread through the the conversation about integration testing is speed. You know, because there's been quite the obsession for a while now about the speed of tests and. At least mm-hmm. in my experience, integration tests are going to be—I don't know—a lot slower. Yeah, or of magnitude slower than the uh, the unit tests would be. And I wonder if that if that causes people to underinvest in them. You know, in, in other words, maybe there isn't enough thinking about the relative value for your milliseconds of the test that maybe the integration tests deliver 100 or a 1, thousand x the value, even though they they take you know 100 x the time too.
1: Yeah. You, you know, there's, there's, as with everything, there are (laughs) trade-offs and if your goal is to have, if part of the goal of having tests is so that you can work quickly without fear of breaking things, then the speed at which your tests run are, are important. Um, because if you don't, if you have a very long feedback cycle, it's going to be difficult to know, uh, well, I've made this change. and now need to wait 45 minutes to know that I haven't broken anything. That's going to slow me down, and you don't want to be slowed down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as with most things, the answer is somewhere in the middle rather than at the extremes. And having a comprehensive set of integration tests coupled with uh, appropriate tests at the different levels allow you to say, I made this change I'm going to run just my unit tests around the change that I've made. If those pass, great. Now I can run the full build, or maybe you know I'll run CI on my branch or whatever. However, you're set up to run those longer integration tests. Um, you know, I think no one should enter the expectation that it, you having integration tests is going to be super fast. Right. Um, but at the same time. Not only comprehensive coverage, but you know, as, as developers, as uh, people who care about our tools, we want to be improving them. And so I think it's a worthwhile endeavor for people on your team and people in, in the community to be looking at ways to make, uh, to make integration tests faster when possible as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't need to be at the disservice of writing clean functional code. Uh, that does its job well um, that should be in the service of it and if you I agree that if you if you 've gotten off track there if you 're making changes to your code purely to make the tests run faster or to make them easier to test solely for that reason you 've probably gotten off track um, but not um, not uh, you know that it 's got to be somewhere in the middle
0: Right, so your point about continuous integration um, servers, I think, is very smart. It also reminds me to read our first sponsor for the, okay. <laughs> for the podcast. I'm going to do that. So our first sponsor today is the CodeShip. Uh, CodeShip is continuous deployment made simple. Um, you can set up your CI server on CodeShip in a few uh, easy steps and automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. It's almost like they knew we were going to talk about all this today. Um, they have great support for lots of languages and test frameworks. Basically, most things that people that listening uh, are listening to this podcast would need can go and check out Codeship.io for the full list. They integrate with GitHub and Bitbucket, and they deploy to cloud services like Heroku, uh, Amazon Web Services, Nojitsu, Google App Engine, or your own services. Uh, you can start with a free plan. requires no credit card. takes only three minutes to set up can learn a lot more about them, their company, their attitude about things at blog.codeship.io. I also recommend reading or watching the, uh, the short video that they've got on their, uh, uh, the front page of their website to get an idea of what they're all about. So I'd like to thank Codeship for sponsoring this week. Again, Codeship.io.
1: All right. Thank you, Codeship.
0: Thank you. So let's wrap up the DHH talk with a couple things. One, a little bit about style and kind of, uh, I want to separate his talk into two parts. Mm-hmm. One, you know, what are the style elements that, you know, may not be what you or I would do, but are fine. And then are there any elements of the, the style that he's using that are, are counterproductive in a way that we think, you know, uh, is worth talking about. Mm-hmm. So, Uh, I'll kick it off. So use of profanity, where do you come down on this? Is it sort of okay in a matter of style, or does it set a a tone that's too aggressive for an an event like RailsConf at this point in the community's development?
1: That's a really great question. I personally um, don't mind it, but I know a lot of people do. I also think that there's a big difference between a talk where you're just happening, you're you're giving an inspirational talk or about the future of rails or whatever, and you just happen to use profanity, and one where you're being quite controversial or negative in your remarks and also using profanity. I think it sets it it takes what is already sort of negative and makes it even worse. Yeah, Um, and so. I think his argument would be stronger sometimes if he uh, if he didn't do that. And, you know, I don't I don't I don't know, but it seems intentional. It doesn't you know, it's not off the cuff in any way to me when I when I see him speak. It seems intentional like he is rehearsing it with the swears in place.
0: Yeah, I think that that, that's very smart way to say it. I think that that's true. And you know, actually, I think I'll come down more black and white on it. I think that, I think that having a swear word in a talk is fine. And like you said, Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's the end of the world, especially if, uh, if it's natural. I think that I think that if a talk feels hostile, right. um, However, I mean, whether that was you know yelling in a Mm -hmm. intense manner or showing you know imagery that was violent or Mm -hmm. using language that sort of intentionally. Um, aggressive to the, to a point where it makes people feel uncomfortable. I think like an average person would probably feel uncomfortable at least a little bit. I think, I think it crosses the line.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't Um, disagree. uh,
0: What about the sort of extremeness of the style in general? Do you think that the, like notwithstanding something like the excessive use of profanity, do you think the community is better off having kind of such a, polarizing talk than to, to have discussions around, or do you think it'd be better to, to go the other direction and have more nuanced presentations that may not be as viscerally kind of uh, rewarding, but, but maybe a
1: little more professional. So I was on a panel, I think the next day, um, and it was a, it was a panel about the future of rails jobs. And the question came up, um, just like, are, what is the future of Rails? Um, you know, are people still interested in it, and is it still growing? Like, what kind of headroom do we have? And everyone on the panel, including myself, agreed that we have a lot of headroom. Like, that the growth of Rails, the growth of people using Rails is not over yet. Um, but, um, you know, when, I, when we came to Rails... Um, the really great developers, the people who I consider great developers in the world were using Ruby, were using Rails um, and I feel like we're at an inflection point where many of those people are ex- at least experimenting with other things and moving on to other things uh, in, some, in some cases and we see it at ThoughtBot too that there's more interest than there has been in our history uh, exploring new languages, new frameworks, and potentially using them to build the right kind of things and so I think that you do have a risk, and the comment I made in the panel was like if the if the the like spiritual leader of your community is up there being very incredibly negative about the things that you love to do and you believe you're a better developer because of it well. That's not going to incentivize you to stay involved in the community, and it might be the thing that pushes you to do your next project in Go or closure or whatever you know, whatever you think might be interesting and explore that a little further. Then I think that if we r- lose those um, you know p- members of the community, then that would be doing a disservice to Rails and to Ruby.
0: Yeah, I mean, maybe it's a classic case of the the thing that early on helped. Mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, gel interest to, or get attention to Rails at the very least, which then kind of created some critical mass of guys like yourself and your team, right. and maybe that very thing is the thing that ultimately works against you at this stage of the community's development, where the, that that kind of uh, bright light, um, somewhat controversial, or at least or, or at least um, sort of titillating comments now turn more people off than they attract to the community you right. know, I and, that and i part. would just
1: ask the question like is this the thing we need to be spending time and energy on now mm-hmm. like you know if you look at the history of rails keynotes by david like you know it's like here's the here's what we're planning for rails three to step, step back further here's this concept that we're going to be pushing forward it's rest and that's going to dramatically change how we build web applications using Rails and it's going to keep Rails on the forefront of web application development. And then even last year's, which is like, here's how we believe that JavaScript heavy applications should be built or dynamic applications should be built. That's important to Rails. That's, that's important to the community to understand how he views and the Rails core team generally views uh, the path Forward in that regard, and it was pretty odd to have to not even say like we just released rails four point one here's where we've come here's what the few new features were no one did that at rails Conf yep. in a keynote position this year um, and Aaron the closing keynote you know talked about adequate record and merged that in and that was really great if someone did that there, I don't think there'd be any complaints and you know I would ra- much rather see a real, like, discussion about the, what is going into Rails, the thought that's going into it and, and everything, instead of um, what we got, which was not that at all. Um, and, and yes, I think we should always, we care about our tools, we want to be proving them and challenging our assumptions and all that stuff. I just think it's very debatable that that was a constructive way to do it in style Um, but also whether it's the most important thing we need to be spending our time on now.
0: Well, I feel like maybe David revealed why he didn't talk about kind of the the key issues facing rails right now in his talk, because I'll I'll throw out what I think are the key topics Mm -hmm. that that would have been listed. So performance, Mm -hmm. um, you know, making Ruby and rails faster is, is a, a big theme around. And I think one of the reasons people get interested in, in languages like go, um, type safety. Mm-hmm. is seems like a thing right now. I think again, you know, what can how can we get the benefits of Ruby while at least selectively getting the benefits from um statically typed languages? Um mm-hmm. that that seems to be a, a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, memory management um seems to be a seems to be a thing. Um and all of those are kind of CSE yeah. um topics and um the topics like um syntax and conventions over how you store files or what you name things. Those are a little bit more figured out in rails now. And I don't think that there's a lot of, I mean, if, there are always people that think things could be named better or the syntax could be smarter or whatever. But, um, but I think that that's in like a pretty good place. And right now the frontier is very science heavy. And maybe that just doesn't, maybe that doesn't jive with how he sees the world that, I mean, he said so that, that that's not how he sees things.
1: Yeah. I have really hadn't put those, that, pieces together i think you're right and i think that there's you know he needs to be careful if if the people who are involved in rails who are going to be doing that heavy lifting feel underappreciated or like that they don't belong um that could hurt rails um we recorded a podcast episode with aaron um it's going to be the 100th episode of giant robots and Um, He made the comment, like, I think if people, if he were to have gone on stage and said, like, we're not going to make new features in Rails for the next year, we're going to work on Rails 4.2 or Rails 5, it's going to be purely performance and cleanup. I think people would respond really well to that. That was the point he made. Um, I think he's right. Um, I think so, too. If you alienate the people who are going to do that by telling them that their work is marginal or not important are not necessary for writing applications that could be a problem well here i'm going to make a prediction then i think that
0: next year's RailsConf, that announcement will be made Mm. i think you know i mean maybe and david's in a very public position and i mean he also acknowledged that the reason rails one of the reasons rails isn't faster than it is is because of his own limitations right and you know, I, I don't think that he's the sort of guy that's going to get up and, and fall on his, his sword on stage. But it wouldn't surprise me, actually, if if next year, uh, just as we had uh, um, Yehuda talking about Ember in, in a keynote this year, if next year performance and and uh, type safety and, and some other things that, that are, uh, I, I think, underlying Aaron's comments do take the front seat. Uh, we'll see. Well, oh, that's a
1: bold prediction. We'll see. And what the heck? It's, it's more interesting <laughs> to make a bold prediction than a boring one. <laughs>
0: uh, all right. So, uh, I appreciate you talking about, um, his talk. I think it's, uh, uh, I think it got a, a quite the reaction and, and, uh, you know, I think that there are some interesting takeaways for, for us, uh, as a community. So let's talk about ThoughtBot more. Yeah. Um, specifically about the evolution of, of ThoughtBot. Um, you know, it's come a long way from its um, Rails One days and or before that, I guess, mm-hmm. to, to now. So, what um, kind of what's keeping you up at night, both excited and and uh, anxious, as it relates to to where Thoughtbot and its communities uh, are?
1: So I really try hard not to be kept up at night by anything. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's, that's what motivated answer. me. The history and technical support, the history and being uh, in that position really has motivated me and all of us to uh, not be in that position, not worry about things. Um, we outsource everything that is not a primary business function uh, to people who are much better at it than we are and with few exceptions uh, everyone who works at thoughtbot is a designer or a developer um and those exceptions are we have office managers in a couple offices and tom is our video and podcast producer who works on learn and with those exceptions everyone's a designer or developer and that's really important so that means we don't have salespeople, we don't have project managers um we don't have uh investors we don't have accountants or bookkeepers or a CFO or controllers all those people are people who are much better at it than we would and and uh, they're out that we outsource to them
0: so uh, how does how does learn fit into that if you could give a background on what learn is and then you know how, how did that end up being sort of a core
1: thing instead of not a core thing i'm, I'm interested in that We've been doing workshops, uh, in-person workshops and workshops at conferences. We've been doing it, um, we started doing it in 2008, so however long ago that was. Uh, So we've been doing it for a long time. Um, And what we found is as the scale of the Rails community increased and um, we started trying to bring those workshops to um, other places and it wasn't really sustainable Um, and also less people were taking them honestly um, you know and I'm not sure of the in- reasons for that but I think that you know when we're trying to offer comprehensive workshops in Boston we get the you know group, biggest group of customers to do that and then most of the people in the the community have taken them um, who are going to take them who are going to spend a thousand dollars on a mm-hmm. workshop or something like that so a couple years ago I started to look at like what is the future of this going to be for us and we did it not we, we started doing it not because we um, wanted to make a separate business. We did it because we really wanted to teach people the way that we think sh- things should be done, make them better developers, teach them Rails from other frameworks and those kinds of things. So we started moving that content online uh, and recording our, video, our, our workshops um, and moving them online so that first people could take them uh, in a very structured way and now... At their own pace. At the same time, we also wrote Backbone.js on Rails, uh, which was our first sort of self published book. And the act of doing that, the process of doing that, we built infrastructure to when you buy a book, you get added to the GitHub repo, you get access to all the source code, you get access to a forum with Thoughtbot, um, all those things. Those pieces started to come together. The online workshops and the infrastructure of books and um, and and GitHub and everything. So uh, it took about a year, but we um, generated as we converted our in-person workshops to just as successful of an online um, business, uh, where everyone was doing everything online from books and and everything. So, uh, but then that started to um, taper off. It was a single purchase model was the idea, and, and eventually we said, you know what? This should just be a subscription service uh, where you pay a reasonable monthly fee, um, and you get access to everything. Um, and so that's what we transitioned to, uh, and that's what Learn is today. So it is a complete collection of everything that Thoughtbot teaches: b- uh, book, our books, our screencasts, our workshops forum with all of ThoughtBot, weekly office hours across three time zones. So we have an office in Stockholm. They do office hours at 10.30 in the morning, Central European time. We do a 10.30 Eastern time and then at 4 p.m. Pacific. So we try to have a complete spread. So once a week, subscribers can come into the Campfire chat room, get help with their questions in the workshops or the books or just in general Rails questions, in addition to the 24 by 7 forum with all of ThoughtBot and all the other subscribers. So and if, if, yeah, if you're going to
0: divi- if you're gonna divide up kind of the, the the reason that you have chosen to, um, I guess, build, learn, and then expand, learn, like what portion would, would be that it's a, it's a business that you think is good? What portion would be that it um, is good for employees because they feel like they, they get to connect with the outside world? And what portion would be kind of a community service like the open source work that you do?
1: Uh, I would say, and it sounds crazy when I say it out loud, but it's almost all just stuff we would do anyway. Um, Just like our open source is just stuff that we do anyway, um, it's really nice that our open source has the marketing benefit it does for building our reputation and everything. Same thing with the education stuff. It's all stuff we were doing anyway. All I did was aggregated the stuff we were doing um, internally and externally, many cases very early on for free, uh, when we go to a conference and give that workshop for free, um, to eventually you know being paid for our time, paid for our effort there, and you know now it runs as a separate sort of business unit within Thoughtbot that we keep track of. But um, our primary motiv- motivating factor is not the money; um, it's, uh, it's not that good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. It, it is you know it's creating something that people love, that's helpful to people. Um, you know, and that's our primary motivating factor. And I tend to believe in general, if you focus on that, um, then success will come, uh, along the way. So I think it's
0: interesting that, that books and screencasts and other things in the community tend to be, a. Uh... Kind of a for-pay model, whereas open source is not for-pay. Given what you said, it sounds like it wouldn't be crazy if you guys decided to like say, well, you know, uh, the learn is the way that we build a reputation and generate clients, and like open source, it's it's one of the things we give away. Am I crazy in imagining that that wouldn't be a, a nuts thing for you to do?
1: No, you're not crazy. In fact, when we were going through the transition period, where in-person workshops you know we're going down to the point where like the primary reason why we were scrutinizing that wasn 't because we were like, "Hey, our business is going away, but rather like less people are taking these workshops, which means we 're not going to be able to do them anymore like that was that was the the primary thing like so when we were in that transition period and looking at what we might be able to do to change it and make it more more widespread, um, one of the things we looked at was just making everything free um and it came down to, and the position I argued was like, no one could show me that our reputation was actually any less, uh, uh, or that it would be any bigger if we, if everything there was free, that like, and so why not, ca- why not make sure that our costs were covered with it if we could? Um, you know, the fact that we have, you know, the we release a book and lots of people get it, hundreds or thousands of people get it. Um that's h- hundreds or thousands of people who either are learning about us through that book or whatever, and we were paid for our time in writing the book anyway so um, there wasn't a strong argument we was something we actually had it twice a, a real deep dive into figuring out whether that was the right call um, once before we uh, converted to online and then another before we moved to subscription uh, where we said, you know is this worth just doing for free um, and I you know no one was able to make the strong argument that we weren't capturing the reputational value from that we would get if it was just pure content marketing so we do do a lot of stuff for free though um, you know um, tons of stuff yeah so we do you know the podcasts uh, the the, the um, we don't have sponsorships on our podcasts um, the blog obviously and then you know, we're releasing more stuff to YouTube and stuff than ever before now that Tom's actually able to do it.
0: So speaking of of free things you do, so what's your favorite uh, open source project that you've uh, sponsored as a company?
1: Uh, that's a tough question. That's like asking what your favorite, who your favorite kid is. <laughs> uh, so I guess the they wax and wane. Uh, in terms of popularity or or which ones i 'm using on a daily basis now i 'm um, really excited and really love bourbon and the bourbon ecosystem that we 've built because we really have started to achieve one of the goals that I was originally set out we, we had a set of plugins, a set of things that I was much more heavily involved in, and they were all geared towards. somewhat rapidly creating the kinds of products that we create rather than just like file upload or or testing libraries or whatever it was really like these are the things that will enable us and other people in the world to create something that's a great product Um, and um, you know we didn't quite achieve those goals with the original plugins but bourbon is sort of the bourbon and uh, refills and neat and bitters are the realization of that goal. Um, and so, uh, I really enjoy using them and they're also sort of in that philosophy now. And so right now, I guess those are my favorite. Um, but I, you know, it's they're my favorite too.
0: Okay, cool. For what it's worth. Well, here's why. So I, um, I remember when Twitter bootstrap came out, it, uh, it felt like dying and going to heaven to me because I wasn't all <laughs> that interested in, in spending my time on the problems that it solved. Right. But then, like I had this na- you, know, you had this nagging feeling that that the front end code was really bootstrapped up yeah. and yeah. and it, you know, while I I thought that the trade off was worth it in a lot of cases at least. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a pretty big trade off still, right, and then bourbon came out and or not came out when I started using it, which is some amount of time after it was first uh released. it was like all the good from from bootstrap with like none of the bad right yeah, I didn't feel like I was making a trade off at all. I just felt like I was winning in every direction, and uh man, there aren't that many times where that that happens
1: yeah and and th- one of the really nice things about bourbon too is. You know, we very much support Rails with it. It's a drop-in Rails gem. But it's also not limited to just people who use Rails. Like any web developer using any... The only dependency is SaaS. So we don't depend on Ruby, uh, unlike other, you know, CSS SaaS frameworks. We don't depend on anything except SaaS. And so it's useful to... Anyone doing web development which is exciting because not everyone does use rails and um, also you see it integrated into web development uh, GUI applications I think like codeKit and some other ones they coda they all integrate bourbon and neat so that you can just use them and when you use them they're exported from from the project.
0: Does it ever um, integrate with sprockets or do you have to go not sprockets on, on the CSS includes?
1: So that's a good question. Cause uh, Q QRush on Twitter, Nick Caranto uh, was saying, I wish bourbon worked with sprockets. And I, and I responded on Twitter saying it does. What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. And what he was talking about is you need to not require all um, at the top of your, so technically it's using sprockets. So it's still served by the, applica- the, the asset pipeline. But because load order matters in SAS, we have to we can't just say require all my CSS files anymore. Because you need to make sure that bourbon um, is included before you use it in your SAS files. And so that throws off the ability to load everything. Uh, but if, so Sprockets doesn't have dependency management, um, so um, you know it, I think it loads everything alphabetically, um, the files alphabetically. So it's the same thing if you're building a ba- an Ember app or a Backbone app, and you have uh, dependencies within your JavaScript classes, you need to specify the order in which those are loaded. You're still using sort of Sprockets and the asset pipeline. To compile those files together, right. but you need to specify the order. So it's for the same reason that we need to not have require all and instead include bourbon and then include your CS, your SAS files. Yeah, and say that that now I think
0: it's a, a trade-off that's easily worth it. I don't think it's even debatable. But I think that it's the only gotcha for people that are used to sort of the, the magic uh, uh application.css in Rails to include yeah. all of the CSS.
1: Yeah, in theory, you could probably. Uh, so we looked at, at this because we, you know, we agree we didn't want to have this as a trade off. We tried to eliminate it. Um, I think if we were, one of the things is if you require files uh, within, fi- they'll be required multiple times. So if we could fix that problem, then we might be able to make it so that just in your individual SAS files where you're using Bourbon, you'd be able to require the Bourbon there. And it wouldn't be required multiple. It wouldn't be included or required multiple times. Mm-hmm. It would just do it once. But that's i that, I'm not sure, off the top of my head, whether that's a limitation of SAS or a limitation of uh, Sprockets. I think it might be Sprockets, but um, it would require more work to do that, and we just haven't gotten around to that yet.
0: Right. Well, hey, on behalf of everyone that uses Bourbon, and it's. Companion libraries. Thank you for that because it's just awesome.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh,
0: I love it. Uh, all right, so I have uh, two more things. I have our last sponsor read, which is sort of awkwardly related to the learn conversation. So <laughs> here we go. And then uh, I- I'm interested in just the short advertisement of what people can actually buy from Thoughtbot because for all these years of using Thoughtbot libraries and reading your stuff, I've never heard the pitch. So I'm interested in okay. what the pitch is. Okay, good. But, but first, let me let me read the uh, awkwardly overlapping sponsor. <laughs> so, <laughs> our second sponsor is Lynda.com. Yeah. Uh, is this awkward or not awkward? No, it's not awkward. Okay. So I'm going to read like <laughs> two sentences of what they are, and then I'm interested in why it's not awkward. If you don't mind. Yeah. All yeah. right. So Lynda.com offers thousands of video courses and software, creative and business skills, everything from web development and user experience to photography and video editing. They over they have over uh, 2,400 courses that are taught by industry experts. So like on the surface, I could imagine someone thinking that this overlaps with mm-hmm. learn. Uh, is, how true is that?
1: Well, I, um, it doesn't really because we generally believe that great developers, great people who want to improve should be doing that constantly. And, you know, that's going to be in all kinds of things. And we don't try to be all things to all people. Uh, We try to provide a a human element, a relationship with ThoughtBot, that you're getting help from real people, and you're really refining your skills. So we provide Mm -hmm. exercises, and it's really about moving from an intermediate to an advanced Rails developer rather than learning new skills, Um, learning refactoring techniques, those kinds of things. And so anyone who is really interested in learning is probably what we see is many people subscribe to multiple services who are subscribed to learn. Those are subscribe to learn. They'll subscribe to Linda and other ones. I don't want to mention other competitors of Linda. <laughs> Make it even more awkward. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we see people subscribe to both and, and um, that's okay by us. Yeah.
0: Okay. So let me finish it off. So it, it's, and I agree. It seems like uh, uh, if there's a topic that you don't know all that much about, Mm-hmm. Lynda.com is pretty good for that. And right. and Learn is clearly about something that everyone participating knows a whole lot about. Right. Um, all right. So, uh, Lynda.com works with the software companies that provide the underlying software to update the training uh, as new versions hit the market. So, you're always up to speed. They've got courses for beginners as well as uh, higher uh, experience levels. The uh, price is $25 a month for their entire library. Um, to Chad's point, they have uh, some intro courses and in a number of topics like Ruby on Rails four, PHP with MySQL, JavaScript, Git, HTML, etc. You can watch from your computer, tablet, or mobile device. The courses are broken into bite-sized pieces so you can learn at your own rate. Uh, they offer uh, tools such as searchable transcripts, playlists, and certificates of course completion. You can publish to your LinkedIn profile and, uh, premium members. If you pay more than the 25 a month, uh, with an annual plan, can download the courses to their iPhones and iPads to watch them online or offline. Uh, we've got a deal with Linda that provides you with access to their entire library for free for seven days. If you use the code Ruby on rails. So visit Lynda.com, that's dot com slash Ruby on rails to start your seven day free trial thanks to lynda.com for sponsoring all right so thanks uh, and thanks to you for <laughs> having a semi competitor in the middle of our conversation <laughs> no problem uh all right so i i'm interested in the the pitch for thoughtbot uh, and, and it shows unbelievable discipline that you guys do not pitch this that that often anywhere for those of us that happen to run into you all over the place all the time
1: yeah um so I don't know why that is. It's just not our nature. No, it's not really our nature. Uh, It's not really on purpose. I mean, it is sort of our nature. It's not really on purpose. Um, So, you know, the majority of the work that we do is working with very early stage companies, uh, usually individual founder or uh, co-founders who are non-technical, who have an idea uh, for a new business, uh, that is driven by software or that is a new software business. And we help them uh, go from concept to minimum viable product pretty quickly, usually uh, in 4 to 12 weeks. And so we very much, uh, it's, it's a lot like an incubator uh, in the way that we give them office space. They work right alongside our team. Uh, most of our teams are a designer and two developers working directly with those founders. And most of the companies we work with are pre-VC funding, so uh, Seed or Angel or even self-funded. And, um, again, we help them refine that concept, make sure that there's a product in there that people are actually going to respond to and pay for, and then bring that to market quickly, and then go on to iterate on a, you know based on that customer feedback, based on that user feedback, iterating on a weekly basis. Uh, and we usually work with customers. Our goal is not to tie them to us forever. goal is not to do maintenance follow-on work. Our goal is to build a successful company. So um, usually those companies work with us for a total of about four to six months. And the the benchmark that they're working towards is is the next phase of their company. So we're helping them get to the next phase of their company. That typically coincides with taking more funding, uh, taking another funding round, or becoming revenue uh, self-sustaining. And it also coincides with hiring people to replace us. So we're not recruiters. We don't help find the people typically, although our reputation sometimes helps. What we focus on is uh, helping them hire the right people. So we we participate in the technical interviews they do, We provide recommendations about who might be a good fit, and then we, uh, they work, those people work inside, in our office as well. So you hire a designer, you hire a developer, they come work here as well. They work right alongside of us learning the system we've built, learning uh, best practices that we implement, learning how we work so that they can continue the successful trend that we've hopefully set the company on from the beginning. And, um, and then they go off, they move out of our office into their own space or whatever and uh, continue on uh, there.
0: So there are a bunch of complementary businesses that you mentioned to call it outsourced development. Whether it's mm-hmm. landlord, uh, recruiter, um, fundraiser, maybe financier, D- do you play those other roles as kind of part of the Thoughtbot business, or are they just sort of like ancillary things you get involved with because you have to?
1: They're 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 ancillary, but um, not because we don't enjoy them or like them. It's just. At the early stage, we uh, we focus on building the best product possible that people are going to want. Um, that's our main focus. It's what we're optimized for, um, and what is frankly often most important at that stage of a company: refining the idea, making sure that you don't spend two years working on an idea that nobody wants. Um, that kind of thing. And many of the people we work with, the reason why they work with us is because, you know, we're not cheap. Um, they're going to spend as much money with us as they might spend, uh, you know, working offshore development for a year. Um, but what they, what we are going to promise them is that like, we're going to either make them successful in a much shorter time, or we're going to save them a lot of time and effort and money by, uh, determining that, you know, four weeks in what you originally thought your business was going to be, uh, isn't going to work. And that's immensely valuable, particularly to the people who are going to do self-funding. They're going to bootstrap it at first. Um, it's a much more reasonable uh, argument to make than taking a year of your life and, and doing that.
0: So it seems like companies at that stage need um, strategy help as much as they do design and development help. Mm-hmm. Do, do you guys provide that? And if so, who's who's doing that? Because that's quite a different skill than than
1: programming and design. I think, at least. Yeah, you're right. It, it is, although it's one that we really uh, take pride in that everyone at Thoughtbot cares about that and, and participates in that process. Uh, it's typically design-led, so designers at Thoughtbot are not just visual designers. Um, they uh, are usability, user experience. They're pro- we call them product designers. Uh, they're they're responsible for helping design and lead the product. And uh, so user experience, usability, as well as they implement their own designs in HTML and CSS. They work inside the Rails app. Um, So they're working at all levels um, in the same way that the developers are working at all levels and directly with the customers. So everyone's involved in that process. We do a five-step process now uh, called a product design sprint, and we didn't uh, invent that, but um, we've picked it up and, and formalized it as something that we do. Um, and what it is, is a formalized process for going through, um, the assumptions that your business is making, that you're making in your product and, uh, identifying how you can test them and then rapidly testing them, uh, with prototyping or or whatever in front of actual people who might be your customers. Um, so it's a, Typically a five-day process where you go from identifying those assumptions, building a prototype, and then inviting customers in to use that and watching them, videotaping them, that kind of thing, uh, where uh, you're identifying whether you've made the right assumptions or not. So I can imagine you guys sort of
0: branching out into into product and company strategy thinking, kind of Mm -hmm. the at the same level of depth that you've done some of the design and, and development and, I don't know, overall architecture and, and maintenance stuff. Is it, it? Am I wrong to imagine that? It seems like sort of an opportunity to, to, to sort of take your attention to detail and all your experience and maybe formalize it like you have with all the other areas.
1: I don't think you're wrong, except we generally tend to be less about uh, we're generally skeptical about uh, strategy in the grand vision sense. And we're much more focused on, you know, what can we do to make this successful very concretely today in the shortest amount of time possible. And so I think we have a natural resistance to the higher level strategy, marketing, branding, kind of stuff it's not it's just for the kinds of people that we work with it's not the most overriding concern at that point it's you know what is what is the thing that people will build so I think generally yes we're, we're, we're getting more comfortable um, you know especially now that we're doing a uh, true product design sprint we're getting more and more comfortable with those kinds of things but I think that we have a natural resistance to pure strategy um, consulting. So I think
0: an irony there is that the people at the stage of development that you mentioned, uh, at least in my experience with it, struggle there as much as anywhere. Mm-hmm. In other words, just knowing what problem to solve is a problem. Uh, right. And
1: and that we are helping identify that. So, you know, we're not going off and spending four to 12 weeks building a product. We're doing it in five days. You know, we're, 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 we're having a, a a process to bring their ideas through. That in five days we're going to evaluate something. Right. Um, so that's that's the majority of what we do, um, and then we have a whole slew of people who, because of our expertise in Ruby on Rails, particularly, but also with design and iOS, um, they come to us to solve specific challenges. So for Rails specifically, it's you know the established company that has. A Rails application that they need to scale or make highly available, and so um, we have a lot of that work as well. And and we like to keep a healthy mix, not only because they have different financial characteristics, the different kinds of projects, but it's fun to work on. You know, when we're launching a new business, it may only be used by twelve people at first. You know, it's it's we want to stay fresh with scaling systems, and it's fun to be working on something that you know. It, it, or it's nice to have a mix of things where you know hey this is going to be 12 people and this one's going to be 100,000 people right. like it's nice to have that mix it keeps things interesting and so we we really try to have a, a healthy mix of those
0: have you incubated your own thing ever?
1: Like a- we have yeah we definitely have so we built um, over the years we've launched I think it's eight um, SaaS businesses um, the, the most successful of which was uh Product that started out called Hoptoad and uh, got renamed to Airbrake for uh, trademark reasons. And so we ran that. We incubated that as an internal app and then launched it as a product. We ran it for two years. We had a team of uh, full time people on it. Um, And then um, we ended up selling that. um, And it was sold to Exceptional and Airbrake were sold to the same people, which then. Uh, they ran it for a little while, and they recently, uh, last year, they sold it to Rackspace. So it's owned by Rackspace now. I didn't know yeah. you guys built that until today. Like I, Oh, okay. Reading yeah, it. It's um, been a couple years. It's been, when did we sell it? 2011. So it's been three years um, where we haven't run it. Our logo's not on it anymore. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people don't know that we initially wrote it. And you know, the, the reason we didn't go into the conversation... Expecting to sell it, we expected not to. Um, But in the process of talking to um, them and and working through like what we were bringing to the table and what they were bringing to the table, and also looking at the financials and realizing it wasn't as successful as we thought it was. It was profitable, but we were spend. The reality was we were a little bit tired. Um, We had spent two years of having a team of people on it. And every week we'd meet for our retrospective and be like, here's all the features we planned for this week. And then we'd be like, but we spent all week scaling the, the site. Mm-hmm. Um, the ser- the characteristics of that service, it's essentially under like a constant DOS attack. Um, the level of traffic is very high and the characteristics of the information you're receiving are quite proce- process intense. It's intense to process it, especially since there's no theoretical the, theoretically there's no limit to what you get sent so we would get like sent a 64 megabyte stack trace and it's like and not only once but 5,000 times like okay. and so the level of the system you know it's not the biggest thing in the world but it was a difficult problem and so going two years where we weren't really making the changes to the application that we wanted to and we were spending all our time just scaling it um you know, at the end of the day, we decided that uh, we would be happier uh, working on other things and let another team uh, take that over. Who could potentially uh, uh, focus on uh, making the system more successful. So that's what we did.
0: All right. Is that a, it, so? Was the takeaway from that experience that that maybe you'll stick to to building other people's stuff, or do you think you'll launch other SaaS products like that in the future?
1: Uh, we. We will launch other things. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, we launched uh, something that's free now, but it will have paid plans soon. It's called Hound. Uh, It's at houndci.com. And what it is is it's a style guide checking for your Ruby and soon JavaScript code. So you make a pull request on GitHub, and Hound is hooked up, and it will comment on the individual lines that violate your style guide. So it comes defaults to ThoughtBot style guide uh, for Ruby, but you can customize it to match your own style guide. I totally forgot about this. So I, I saw this when you announced it. I think it's, a, it's great. a nice segue. You were setting me up for a nice segue. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> I, what a great uh, idea. I kind of like Code Climate
1: and yep. it's uh, This is a nice compliment it, to Code Climate. You know, we, yeah. we use Code Climate too. Code Climate is more about the structure of code and how you've made it and whether, you know, whether it's comple- complex and those kinds of things but we check your actual style guide so it's line length, where the commas are placed, where the um you know the parameters for a method, how those are spaced, those kinds of things. We believe that that's, you know, important enough to pay attention to, but not so important that we want to spend the entire code review talking about those things. And that's why we built Hound so that we could spend more of our time on the less mundane things and give when we are giving a code review of someone's pull request um, there's already com- it happens so fast. There's already comments of all the sort of style guide violations using, uh, you know, Ruby 1.9 style hashes, for example. You know, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. So those comments are already there, and we can focus on the higher level code review things that a computer really can't do. Um, I think it's a great idea. I think it's it's exactly what um,
0: I think it's the sort of thing that really. Improves developer happiness by, like you said, sort of allowing someone to have a conversation with their computer about the things the computer can talk to them about.
1: Yeah, thanks. So it's free for public repos now, and we don't have a specific timeline, but we are working on making it so that you can pay for private repos. And uh, that's a good example of what we're focused on now, which is we built that for ourselves. Um, At some point, if we think other people might be interested in it, um, we'll turn it into a product, and um, but we're not necessarily under the mindset that any one of those things is going to be like the future of our business or anything. There, reasonable, nice tools that uh, we hope people will find useful.
0: Cool. So where can where can people find uh, find you on the
1: internet? I'm on Twitter at cpytel, um, and obviously thoughtbot thoughtbot.com, and our blog is robots.thoughtbot.com.
0: If, uh, if someone meets the sort of description of your typical customer and they want to talk to you about whatever it is they're interested in launching, what's the best way to get in touch with ThoughtBot about that?
1: You can send an email to hello at thoughtbot.com and you can also just go to our website and click on the hire us button. (laughs)
0: There you go. (laughs) That's kind of direct. All right. Well, uh, uh, to everyone listening, thanks for, uh, for tuning in today. Uh, I'm Barely Known on Twitter.